Well, True Life, thank you so much for having me back again. I was here a few weeks ago, and it's a privilege and an honor to be here again. And my name's uh, Jacob, and I am Pastor Gene's oldest son, like he said. And so it was, uh, yeah, such an honor to be here this weekend, especially um, because yesterday we got to celebrate Gene's birthday. Yeah, and so I think someone needs to, or yeah, we, someone needs to be sung to. Thank you so much for agreeing to do that for my dad. So thank you guys for singing to him. So I, I love to embarrass him for all that he's done for me. So that's awesome. Well, hey, what a fun thing about that is that, uh, hey, did you guys have a lyric sheet in front of you? No? Yes? Blank stares? No lyric sheets? No? Did, uh, did I email you guys the lyrics ahead of time? No? You didn't study the happy birthday song? No, but like, it's catchy, you remember it, right? Oftentimes, songs are a wonderful way of remembering things. They're powerful, they're catchy, right? Like, like if there's a certain truth that needs to come to my mind, oftentimes it will come in the form of a song. It's so easy to remember. If I hear something through a song, I don't have to go pull out a notebook out of a drawer and remember the truth that I learned once, but rather when I know it as a song... I can easily remember the tune, and I can remember the lyrics, and I can sing that to myself and remember what was being said. Songs are powerful, and not just to remember, but also to affect your heart, to feel what is being expressed through song. And so that is a powerful form of communication, of speaking, of verbalizing truth and expressions. And scripture also uses this form. I don't know if you know this, but scripture uses song and poetry, especially in the Old Testament, and it's valuable to use it. Today we're going to be in Psalm 118, about in the middle of your Bible, and I would encourage you to open up there to Psalm 118. And we're going to study one of these songs, one of the poems that was written for God's people to use, and and we want to see why it is so important to them. These songs are catchy, they're helpful to remember things, but they also express truth in a way that a letter or, a, or some other form of writing cannot express. And so psalms are important for us to understand. And so as we're reading Psalm 118 today, I'm going to read this out loud for us. And when I read it, I want you to pay attention to how this would have been delivered in a song. Hebrew poetry, unlike ours today, is not met with rhyme but rather it's more about the rhythm and the flow. And so you might not hear a lot of rhyme when I read this, but rather I want you to hear the rhythm of what is trying to be said. And so let me read Psalm 118, starting in verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, 
his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his faithful love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his faithful love endures forever. I called to the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and put me in a spacious place. The Lord is for me, I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper, therefore I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles. All the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me in the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. I will give thanks to you because you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Now that's a a long song, right? That's a, a longer piece of poetry to reflect on. And so today as we move about, we might not be able to reflect on the notes and the individual words, but rather I want you to catch the movements of this song as we progress through it. And so looking at this Psalm 118, I see four movements throughout this psalm as it's building to its climax. And so the first movement that we'll see at the start of the psalm is a call to corporate praise. There's first a a call to a corporate praise. The Talmud, this ancient Jewish uh, literature, describes how people of Israel interpreted these psalms. And according to this piece of writing, this psalm was understood as a song of ascension or a processional song for a festival, meaning that there was some festival likely in Jerusalem, and they would sing this psalm or sing this song as they ascended the mountain to Jerusalem. It's about a half-mile difference in elevation from the bottom of the mountain to the top of Jerusalem. And as they would climb their way up the mountain... They said that they would sing this song in preparation for celebrating what the Lord has done. And so gathering together at the base of the mountain, they would begin with this corporate call of praise. 
if this were a concert, it would be as if the lead singers and the band were sitting there singing, but also the show choir they had behind them would also be singing with them, and then they would invite everybody in the crowd to lift up their voices in the chorus as well. And so when we hear the first part of the psalm, I want you to listen to the chorus that would have been sang by everybody that was there getting ready for this festival of celebration to the Lord. And so three times you're going to hear them say the same line, his faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures forever. Here's what it says. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Let Israel say, the show choir now, his faithful love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, everybody on the stage, his faithful love endures forever forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, everybody in the crowd, in the audience say, his faithful love endures forever. It's a call for everybody to praise God and reflect on what he has done. When you see that these words, his faithful love endures forever, there's a particular word here that's being used called kesed. This kesed love in the Hebrew speaks of God's covenantal love. It's reminding the people that God made a promise, a covenant to his people a long time ago. And because of that, they are calling out his covenantal faithfulness. And that God made a promise to his people a long time ago, several generations past. And now that same promise stands for the people today. Although people have came and God, they have died and went to heaven or they have died and moved on. This current generation now continues to speak of, to sing of the covenantal love of God because his faithfulness endures forever and ever. And so all together, corporately, they praise God for his covenantal love. And then from there, when you have these, this time of corporate praise, they move into the second movement of the song, an individual reflection of the Lord's deliverance. They're individually reflecting on what the Lord has done. At the base of the mountain, you had this concert where everybody was singing the chorus together, and now as they are starting to move their way up the mountain, it's not the, the band leading, it's not the choir leading, it's not the people singing the same phrase, but rather it's a time of individual reflection where one person pipes up over here saying, this is what the Lord has done in my life. And after they sing their verse, another person, maybe in the back of the crowd this time, they speak up and they say, this is what the Lord has done in my life. And they pipe down, and then another person, this time in the middle of the crowd, they sing out for everybody to hear, this is what the Lord is currently doing in my life. And so as we read this movement, I want you to hear that. Psalm 118, starting in verse 5, I called to the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and put me in a spacious place. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? The Lord is my helper. Therefore, I will look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humanity. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles. The first verse that is being sang out by an individual this time is calling out about how God has delivered them from personal anguish from personal suffering. When they felt afflicted and suffering, this word could also mean that they felt confined, like everything was in their life was pressing in against them. The Lord responded with freedom or putting them into an 
open place, your version might say, a spacious place. The Lord took that confinement and took them out of that situation and moved them into a different one in which they didn't feel confined or anxious, but rather they found freedom from their personal, individual suffering and anguish. The first person cries out about what the Lord has delivered from them personally, and now a second person cries out, starting in verse 10. All the nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I destroyed them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I destroyed them. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I destroyed them. They pushed me hard to make me fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The second individual crying out of what God has done in their life doesn't talk about personal anguish or suffering, but rather talks about the work of other people in their lives that are pressing in against them. There are people from the nations all around me. There are people from those that are closest to me. They are pressing in. They are surrounding me, and they are hostile toward me. The people around me want to stop me at every turn. They want to keep me from going where God is wanting me to go, and they're against me. And crying out to God, this person says that the Lord has destroyed them. He has handed them over three different times, saying the same phrase in this verse. The individual responds saying that the Lord is the one who delivered me. He points out that it is the Lord who has delivered me out of this situation. He has either removed the situation or he has given me the ability to press through through it. But instead it is God. It is not the individual who presses on, who charges forward, who gets through it. But rather three times he reflects saying every time, at every step, At every moment, it was the Lord who delivered me through that. And so catch that as you read it. In response to the second individual, now everybody ascending their way up the mountain, they now respond in turn to what they just heard. This is what it says in Psalm 118, starting in verse 15. There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. Recognizing the mighty working of what God has done in the life of someone else, now everybody ascending their way up the mountain, they cry out with joy and with victory for the mighty working of what God has done because they can see that in the lives of the people crying out. And so they reflect on the mighty hand of God who is sovereignly able to direct someone through their circumstances, continuing their journey up the mountain as they're getting ready for this festival. They are continuing to testify of that, recognizing God's mighty working hand. And then again, we're getting closer to the top of the mountain and we hear a third voice cry out individually, reflecting on what the Lord has done in their lives. Verse 17 and 18. I will not die, but I will live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. The first person suffered individual anguish and suffering. The second person was under duress from the people around them. But this third person recognizes that it was not themselves that was being afflicted, 
And it was not the people around them doing the afflicting, but rather God was the one disciplining them. That's what he says. The Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. This third individual cries out saying, God has led me through the fire. He put me into the fire, but it was not to destroy me. It was not to destroy me. It was not to kill me. It was not to put me to death, but rather he put me into the fire to discipline me. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so this third individual is crying out for everybody to see that the Lord has disciplined me, but not to punish me, but to rather bring me up in his likeness, under his leadership. He has disciplined me so as to lead me forward. And this is the third praise of deliverance that is called out. And now the crowd that started at the base of the mountain calling out in corporate praise that has now walked their way up the mountain reflecting individually on what the Lord has done now find themselves in the third movement passing through the gates of righteousness. In the third movement, you'll see them passing through the gates of righteousness. If at the beginning there was a loud chorus where everybody cried out together and then the music softened and got slow and people cried out individually with their verses of deliverance. Now in this third movement, the music likely picks up. Maybe there's a conflict between the horns and the strings of of clashing instruments of what's going to happen. Will they be allowed to pass through the gate of righteousness? And you find themselves, or they find themselves at the gate and there's likely a suspenseful pause in the music as they're sitting there. Will the gates Open. Verse 19. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter through it. The people here now singing recognize that to get into the festival, to celebrate what God has done, it's more than just corporately calling out praise. It's more than just gathering together to worship God. And it's more than... Uh, reflecting individually on what the Lord has done in my lives. It's not just praising God in worship, and it's not just reflecting on what God has done in my life, but there's something else that I need to do before I can come into this festival. I need to pass through the gate of righteousness. The gate of righteousness was meant to separate those that were righteous from those who were not righteous. I need to have a personal righteousness. I need to be right with man and right with God in order to pass through to celebrate with everybody else the goodness of God. Am I to be found righteous? And we'll talk about this more uh, before we end today. But in this circumstance, in the song that they sing, they were found righteous. See this in verse 21. I will give thanks to you because you've answered me and have become my salvation. They were being allowed to pass through the gate of righteousness. I give thanks to you because you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's great and all so far, but what's this about a rejected cornerstone? Today in our context, we understand that in light of the New Testament, in light of what Jesus says about himself as a rejected cornerstone. But before Jesus was a rejected cornerstone, this text had meaning to the original audience, 
to this original audience, there are two ways that they might have interpreted this. The first way they might have interpreted it is as, as if, I can't speak, as if Israel were the rejected cornerstone. Israel was the one that was subjected to slavery under Pharaoh. They were the ones that were despised by all the nations around them. They were rejected by those near them. But then God redeemed them and restored them and made them the cornerstone, the capstone, the ones by which all things would be held together, and they would testify to the ends of the earth the goodness and the glory of God. The second and more likely way that they would have understood this is by being King David, who was the one that was the rejected cornerstone. In the Old Testament, when Samuel went to anoint King David to be king over Israel, he went to his father, Jesse, and before Jesse, he was presented sons upon son of Jesse. And time and time again, the Lord told him, no, this is not the one that I have. And time and time again, Jesse passed over his son, David. What about this son? No, not him. What about this son? He is tall and handsome and a hard worker. No, not him. What about this son? He is a great leader. No, not him. Eventually, Samuel has to say, well, don't you have any other sons? The Lord has brought me here. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I have this other one named David. Just an afterthought. I barely thought of him. He was the one passed over and rejected. And then he became the cornerstone of Israel, the one who united the 12 tribes under his reign and rule as the greatest king of Israel. And so they likely would have understood it this way. And now, having understood that, they're coming from the Lord. They're saying that it is wondrous in his sight and that this is the day that the Lord has made. And so they're calling to rejoice and to be glad in it. And so they move into this third movement, which is a second call to corporate praise. A second call to corporate praise. They began the mountain at the base of the mountain with corporate praise, and then they individually walked their way up the mountain, reflecting in individual verses on how God has delivered them. And then they passed before the gates of righteousness, reflecting on their own righteousness. Am I right before God? And they were allowed to pass through. And now entering into the festival celebration, they're called into a second period of corporate praise. And they begin it this way. In verse 25, Lord, save us. Your translation might say, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. And then you hear this familiar tune from the chorus in which they began. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. At this time, there has been building escalation. They have been mounting their way up the mountain, and they have now found themselves in the festival. And they cry out to God, Lord, save us. Hosanna, meaning Lord, save us. And their answer, or their prayer was answered And now the Lord delivers with his light. Verse 27, it says that the Lord is God and has given us light. And now there's this great light of understanding and of insight in which now I can see reflecting both on where we've been and where we are now, who God is and what he has done. And because of that, your name is worthy to be praised. We're going to continue to cry out what we cried out 
in the beginning because you are God and you are good. And so we will say corporately all together, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. But if you're reading this text, you see something and you're like, wait a second, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It doesn't make much sense. The Lord is God and has given us light. Okay, I get that part. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Okay, you're talking about, you know, binding an animal like a lamb or a sheep to the, to the horns of the altar. Like, okay, maybe that makes sense. But for a Jew, that wouldn't make sense. There is no record in the Old Testament or, to the best of our knowledge, to the historical records of festival sacrifices ever being tied to the altar before they were to be sacrificed. This is something different. This is something unique. And they don't quite get it. And the answer to that isn't found until hundreds of years later when the song is saying once again in the time of Jesus. In John chapter 12, Jesus has just entered into the vicinity, the outskirts of Jerusalem. He is making his way there for the Passover festival and on his way into the city, he's met by a crowd. And this crowd has a song on their lips, an expectant song, a song that might sound familiar to you. John chapter 12, verse 12, it reads, the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, Lord save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They kept shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna, Lord save us. That same cry you might hear again in Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. Hundreds of years later, Jesus is met with this same song. He is the one that was expected to come and be the fulfillment of of everything that was expected. And so they expect him to be the coming king, the reigning king, and he would inaugurate this new kingdom, this new celebration, this new festival in which all would be made right, Israel would be restored, and now we are going to celebrate this coming king, calling out Hosanna, Lord save us as a conquering king. But he is not only the one who delivers the one that they called out to save us. But there's also another theme in Psalm 118 that he would then fulfill. Remember what we said earlier in verse 22, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And at the time, Israel might not have understood it, but now in light of the New Testament, we know that Jesus was a rejected cornerstone. Jesus himself in the gospel says that he is the cornerstone rejected by his own people. Entering into Jerusalem, the leaders, the religious leaders, the political leaders of his day reject him. You are not our king. You are not our Messiah. You are not our Lord. You are not our prophet. And they reject him, handing him over to the Roman authorities to then be bound. And again, we hear another theme 
from Psalm 118 in verse 27 at the second part where it says, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The greatest altar, the one being spoken of here is not the altar of the tabernacle. It is not the altar of the temple, but rather it is the altar of a rugged wooden cross on a hill in Golgotha where Roman soldiers slapped Jesus upon this cross and they bound him not with rope but with nails upon its wood. And there he was a rejected cornerstone. He was killed by the people that he came to save. But the good news is that he was resurrected. And that's what you're going to celebrate next week at Easter. But sitting in this moment for a little bit longer, we know that Jesus was rejected unto death, but through his resurrection, he is now our deliverer. And so when we cry out individually of how the Lord has delivered us, he is the one who brings us out of where we once were into the life that he has for us. He's also the one that allows us to pass through the gates of righteousness. Scripture says that when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And when we are saved, we secure the righteousness of Christ. Revelation describes us entering into eternity, wearing the white robes of righteousness that Jesus has secured on our behalf. And so now when we're standing before the gates of righteousness, we get to enter not because of our own good works, not because of what we have done before God, but rather because of what Jesus has done, the price that he has paid and the righteousness that he has secured for us. He is the gate of righteousness through whom we get to pass. And so now reflecting on this through a New Testament lens, a new covenant lens, knowing what Jesus has done for us, how should we respond? I think the greatest moment of application in this passage is found in verse 19, Psalm 118, 19. It says, open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. A two-pronged application I will give, I will enter through the gates of righteousness and I will give thanks to the Lord. Entering through the gates of righteousness, what does that look like in your life? Well, first of all, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, to enter through the gates of righteousness is not to continue to try to do things for God. Romans 11 talks about how who, who could give counsel to the Lord? Who could give something to the Lord that he has not already created? God is greater than what you could give him. Your greatest service, he could do that for himself. Your greatest gift to true life community, he doesn't need your money. Or who, is, who are we to think that God is sitting up in heaven and he's going to call on us one day and say, hey, I have a problem, I need some help, can you, can you figure it out for me? I don't know what to do. But no, Romans 11 says we don't, we can't do anything for him. There's nothing we can give him. There's no service we can offer, but rather the only way unto righteousness is to wear the robes of Christ. It's to say that I'm no longer going to do the things that I once did. I'm no longer going to have the same lordship over my life, but rather I'm going to admit that, Jesus, you have a different plan for my life. Your plan is better than mine. I have dishonored you. I have disobeyed you, but you are the king reigning over all, and I want to bow at your feet 
and say, my life is yours, do whatever you will. And when we do so, we get to wear Jesus' robes of righteousness passing through on his works, not ours. If you're here today and you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, then what do we do when we're standing before the gates of righteousness? But rather, it's a time to reflect. Am I living the life that Jesus has asked me to live? Jesus has redeemed me and restored me, but not just to enter into my eternity, but he wants to change me now. He wants to correct my life now. He wants to make me more righteous now. And it's not going to become immediate, but rather over time, with his leading, he's going to continue to make us more and more like himself. And as we stand before the gates of righteousness, it's an opportunity to reflect. Am I living in a way that honors God? And if not then the answer again is not to reflect, okay, what can I do, but rather how can I submit to what Christ has for me? And so as a final word of advice, recommendation, application, whatever you'd like to call it, what's this week? It's Holy Week, right? It's Holy Week. And so what a fun opportunity that we have. In Psalm 118, I identified four movements in this psalm, in in this poem the first one was a call to corporate praise good job true life you guys have done that you came together today and you corporately praised god for what he's done and as we're getting closer to easter what would it look like for you to individually come up with the verses reflect in your car ride and your commutes in the shower while you're washing dishes and reflect on what god has done in my life Lord Jesus, this is how you have delivered me from my own suffering and anguish. Father, this is how you have restored me when everybody else around me was against me. Jesus, this is how you have disciplined me in love to bring me up into what you have for me. And then as we get to Palm or to Good Friday, and we're reflecting on Jesus upon the cross and his death on our behalf, to reflect on ourselves, standing before the gates of righteousness. Jesus, this is what you have done in my life. Am I living in a way that honors what you have done? And whatever that looks like, whatever Jesus is telling you in that moment, to be faithful to what he's asking you to do. And then next Sunday, Easter Sunday, to come back and to join your your fellow believers, your church body, and again celebrate corporately, praising God for what he's done. That's my challenge to you. True life, can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the the song that affects our, our mind and our heart as well. I pray that we can reflect on the beauty of what you've given us and that we can cry out, Hosanna. Lord, save us. That we can reflect individually, praising you with loud voices, that we can reflect individually on how you have delivered us and redeemed us and restored us and how you continue to shape us into the image of your Son. And I pray that standing before the gates of righteousness, that we can find ourselves not wearing our own filthy rags, but rather your white robes that you have secured for us through your death on a cross. And that coming back for Easter, that we can all stand here and, and celebrate loudly as we never have before, that you are risen that you have been, that you conquered death, you conquered the grave, and now you reign supreme over all, and we want to praise you for all of eternity. 
Father, we love you. We thank you for this time to come together to study your word and to praise you. We ask your blessing in the name of your son. Amen.